1 Corinthians 16, 13. If you're not there yet, that's where we're at. I was thinking about this yesterday. Children, I saw this last week. I approached a little kid. They're standing next to their parent. I was like, hey, little dude. And I was like, you know, poke, 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 poke. You know, just goofing around with the little kids. And he was like, get away from me, dude. And he hides behind his parents. And his parent and grabs the parent's leg. Just out of like, I don't know, you don't touch me. Stay away from me. <laughs> and I was like, you know, it's interesting. Because whenever small children are afraid or uncomfortable or unsure in a, like a zone that they're not used to, they hide behind their parents. They wrap their arms around their leg they get behind the parent, wrap their arms around the leg, and hide their face, like bury their face in the back of their parent's leg, right? It's, a, it's, a com- it's comforting for a child because they have something tangible to express their fear and their discomfort. They have someone they can trust, that they can cling to and hold to uh, when they hide behind their parent, when they can hold on to their parent. They're literally putting the person they trust the most right in front of their face as a means to deal with their discomfort and fear. It assures them that their comfort is right there to help them through whatever they are feeling at the time. Well, we are not children anymore. And God gives us the command to grow out of childhood and into maturity. And doing so means we have to be something. And that something is strong and courageous to face our fears. However, when we do this, God does something even better than being a leg that we can hide behind like it is for a child. He picks us up and holds us. It's much more comforting. And we we can still cling to him. We don't lose anything. We can still have him right there in front of our face to see him. And we are still comforted in our fear and discomfort. Yet, There's this reality that unlike a physical parent who's standing next to you, God is not tangibly, physically in our presence in the same way. So how does God do this for us? How does God comfort us and help us and provide for us and strengthen us with courage in a tangible or even, even a physical way? Well, he does it through three ways. His word, his spirit, and his son. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to show you this command in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. The command is be strong and courageous. And then I'm going to show you how this command comes with something even better. So we're in verse 13. Paul says, act like men, be strong. Act like men, be strong. One of my favorite Bible verses in the whole world because I'm a man, right? So I just love, you know, you can walk around to any guy and just be like, act like a man. Like, why'd you say that? It's in the Bible. You know, like, (laughs) because it's a command, dude. You just have to do it, you know? (laughs) I love this command. And, you know, the the reality, though, is men, and and I've heard these kind of preached at men's retreat, and they're totally applicable for things like, you know, men's retreats and stuff. But it's not really just about manliness. So there are really just, there's two separate commands here. Uh, they're not related by any conjunction, and there's no, like, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a list. It's just two separate commands. Okay, there's no explanation to them. 
They, they feel out of context because there's no explanation around them, right? Paul's at the end of chapter 16. He's speaking logistics, travel plans, and all he says, like, hey, let me just throw these, like, five commands right in your face with no context. But the context we get from these commands comes from earlier in the letter. The whole letter shows us the significance of these commands. And the reality about these two commands, and I think why it's important that Paul lists them together, is because... They are closely related all throughout Scripture. Okay, the first command, that is, act like men, the Greek word literally means conduct oneself in a manly or courageous way. So the idea that Paul is conveying here is not about manliness. It is about courage. And the reason that, that it's translated like as men, or that this idea of being manly must equal courage, is because first century culture, men were the courageous ones. And... Is that any different now? No. Does that mean women and children can't be courageous? Of course that's not what it means. It's just this concept that men are the ones who are given the role to be the bold, strong, and courageous ones for their family, for the community, for the churches. And so this is not just about being a man. This is about courage. That is ultimately the command. Be courageous. Second command is be strong. The Greek word literally means be strong. So not a lot of difficulty with that one, right? So we have these two commands that merge together and, and to form this popular Old Testament command, which is be strong and courageous. Now, though Paul has these two commands listed individually, he is certainly aware how often they occur together in the Old Testament, and he is counting on us to know how these commands were used in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, the command to be strong and courageous always, always, every time, comes with a promise. Every time this command shows up in the Old Testament, be strong and courageous, there's a promise with it. And it's the same promise every time. And that promise is now ours. And it's not only ours, but now that it is ours, listen to this. That promise is not only ours, but now that it's ours, it's even better. I'll show you why. Joshua chapter 1. God commands Joshua to lead the people into the promised land and gives Joshua two things. He gives him, first, he gives him a command, and second, he gives him a promise. The command he gives Joshua is in chapter 1, verse 6. It says, be strong and courageous. The promise that God gives Joshua is in chapter 1, verse 5, and he says, I will not leave you or forsake you. This is the same command that God repeats for us, right? Be strong and courageous. He says it, it happens seven times in the Old Testament. And, and then now Paul's repeating it here for us. And this is only one of two times. This, this, I, this is the only time in the New Testament where the command be strong and courageous shows up in the New Testament for us. One other time, Ephesians 6.10, we have a command be strong, but this idea of courage is not attached to it in that context. So this is the only repetition of this common Old Testament command to be strong and courageous. And in every instance, it comes with the same promise, right? 
is the same promise that God gives us. I will never leave you or forsake you. Now you could argue, right, that like if you're a biblical scholar or you like theology, you like exposition, you study your Bible, you, you could argue that, hey, that promise that God gives Joshua was in a specific context that only applies to Joshua. Hey, Pastor Mark, we're not marching into the, to the land of Canaan to take on the armies that are living there. So this isn't the same promise. This promise doesn't really apply to us. But here's the thing. This is not the only time that God makes this promise. In Hebrews 13.5, the author, so this is in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, for us, the author quotes Joshua 1.5 and then applies God's promise to us. So now it's tangible. Now it's applicable. Now it's ours. And then in addition to that, we've got this promise in other places too. Matthew 28.20, before Jesus leaves the earth, he says, and I am with you Always to the end of the age. So this promise is ours today. That's a great reality. That alone is just a great... I could spend the rest of our time just talking about how good it is that this promise is ours. But I want to show you how God levels up here. right? How he levels up for us. How he gives us another degree of goodness. So this promise is ours, except the difference for us is that Though we still have the same command, be strong and courageous, we have a better promise. It's the same promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. Same promise, but for us, it's better. And I'm going to show you why. The promise that God gives Joshua is that I will never leave you or forsake you. But for us, the promise is even better than it was for Joshua because we now live in the new covenant. God made a new covenant in Christ. The Old Testament conveys the concepts and the ideas and the reality of the Old Covenant. And now, in Christ, we are in a new covenant. And this new covenant we're in is better than the Old Covenant. Hebrews 8.6 Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the Old as the covenant he mediates, that's the new covenant, is better. Well, why is it better? Because it is enacted on better promises. So the promises in the new covenant are better, which makes the covenant better, which means that all the promises we find in the New Testament are better than the promises God is making in the old covenant. So when God makes the promise that I will be with you and I will not leave you or forsake you in the Old Testament, that's a great trustworthy promise. It doesn't lack anything. But in Christ, it's better. And it being better doesn't mean it wasn't perfect before. And I'll show you what I mean. Because it being better happens for a reason. So what is it that makes the new covenant promises better? The answer is in 2 Corinthians 1, 19-20. This is what makes the new covenant promises better and therefore makes the new covenant better. Paul says, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, was not yes and no. We weren't wishy-washy about him, but in him it is always yes. What does that mean, Paul? It means for all the promises of God find their yes in him. What makes our promises better? Jesus 
Jesus makes our promises better. That's the reality. I'll give you two examples to, to help you perceive what I mean when I say Jesus makes God's promises better, that he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. I'll give you two examples of what happens in the Old Testament and how it's better in the New Testament because of Jesus. All right, so first example is that Jesus gives us a better gospel. So Old Testament saints did not have the full revelation of the gospel message like we do. But they were still saved in the same way. They're still saved by the blood of Jesus. They still needed the death of Christ to cover their sins. Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In Christ alone is our salvation. And that's not just post-Christ, that's before Christ. All people who will spend eternity in God's presence in heaven are paid for by Christ. Whether he died after them or before them or while they're here, either way, he's the ticket, regardless of the timeline. And the Old Testament saints were also saved by the same means, faith. They had to believe. Genesis 15, 6, God explains to Abraham just a glimpse of the gospel. So God doesn't give Abraham the whole gospel message. He's not like, hey, so there's going to be this Messiah. His name's going to be Jesus. He'll be born to the Virgin Mary. And then he's going to you know, live a perfect life that you can't live. And then he's going to die on the cross for your sins. And then he's going to be buried for three days. And people are going to be like, no. But then he's going to rise from the grave. It's going to be awesome. And you, all you have to do is believe. He doesn't tell Abraham all that. You know what he tells Abraham? Look at the stars. Count them. Can you count them? You can't. Abraham, you can't count them. That's going to be your offspring. That's not the gospel message. If you went up to someone on the street and told them that message, they'd be like, cool, man. Great story. And walk away. They wouldn't understand what you're talking about, right? So, like, that's just a glimpse because what God is showing Abraham is there will, Abraham, you're going to have a seed. And that seed will be the Savior. He's giving him a taste of the full gospel, but not the whole picture. Because throughout time, God reveals portions of his mystery in a certain, or in a certain timeline. He doesn't reveal everything all at once at the beginning. Right? And then we find in like Ephesians, Paul says, it's a mystery. And now, in the New Covenant, the mystery is unveiled. So they didn't have the full gospel. right? They didn't understand the whole gospel. But Abraham believed only that little portion that God told him. That little portion of the gospel, because that is all that God had revealed to him. And because God had revealed it to him, and that's all that God had revealed, and Abraham believed it, that's faith, believing is faith, God says righteous. That's what we get in Christ. The gospel gives us righteousness. We're declared, we're proclaimed, we are counted to God as righteous because we have to believe in Christ because now we have the full gospel. So God only holds us accountable to that which he reveals to us. For Abraham, for the Old Testament saints, it's an incomplete project. They don't even know really what the end project looks like. They don't have really a concept of what it's going to, you know, what that future promise will in detail will really be. You know, the prophets are writing about the coming Messiah and do they really know the details? They know what they wrote. They don't know what we know, not the fullness of it. We have a, in our basement, we have 
kind of like two basements. We've got like that split level, so there's like a basement. We call it our basement, and then the other one we call our basement basement, which is really annoying. But uh, we could go with basement squared. I like that better. All right, so basement, lower basement, right? So the lower basement we moved in there is just unfinished. And we're like, we're going to finish this thing. So we finished the basement. But st- and, then, and then we... We still didn't have carpet or trim and only some doors. And we're like, good enough, let's just move the kids' bedroom in there. <laughs> so we put the kids in the basement uh, you know, with an unfinished project. We just lay some rugs down. And finally, a couple you know, weeks ago, we're like, let's just finish this whole project. Let's get trim and carpet up. And so we had to take everything out of our boys' rooms and just haul it upstairs to that first basement. And so if you walked into our house right now and you went downstairs, you'd be like, what happened to your house? Like an entire level has been merged up to the other level and is just stuff everywhere. So do not invite yourself over to my house today. I do not want to host you. I'm embarrassed, okay? <laughs> I'm just teasing. But it's, it's, uh, it, it, there's this anticipation that we have that this final product of a finished basement is going to look so amazing. And I'm just so excited to get it done. They're coming on like Thursday, I think. And I'm just like, I can't wait for them to show up. And if you're wondering why didn't you just wait to take all that stuff out, because we had someone plan to do it before, so we took all the stuff out, and then they couldn't do it, so now we get someone else to do it. So now it's been like two weeks of living in like this imbalance and chaos, and I'm like, oh, I just want it to be done. I'm excited about what it will look like. I anticipate what it will look like, but I don't know what it will look like. All I know is I'm going to enjoy it more. It's the same reality with the Old Testament gospel versus the New Testament gospel. It's not done for the Old Testament saints. They have a glimpse of what it might be, and all that's required is that they just believe it. And the reality is the finished product will be better. We, unlike the Old Testament saints, don't just have an unrealized promise. Instead, we have a complete promise and the attainable Messiah, an actual person that we know personally, whose name is Jesus, who is our friend and our brother and our Lord and our Savior, who has fulfilled God's promises of salvation that we can actually grasp and understand and see and read and hear and believe and dive into and dissect and, and worship and glorify. Like there's, We have the full picture of the gospel. Old Testament saints didn't have that. Jesus makes the new covenant better because it is a better promise of a better gospel. And it's a better gospel, not because the first one was not good, but because the better gospel is a finished gospel. That is what makes God's old covenant or new covenant promises better in Christ than the old covenant promise. I'll give you a second example. The second thing that Jesus makes better in the new covenant is rest. So when God promised Israel the land of Canaan, he tells Joshua, Joshua, be strong and courageous and go into the land. And, and he promises them, along with this promise, that I will, or the command to be strong and courageous and the promise that I will never leave you or forsake you and the promise of you get this land also comes a promise of rest. This, that they could finally rest from wandering the desert. Rest, I mean, it's 40 years. 40 years. That's a majority of a human life. That's insane. 
These people left Egypt like, you know, 18 years old and didn't even make it to the promised land. Just wandered the desert for the rest of their life till they were 58 years old and then died. <laughs> Can you imagine that life? Living a nomad that way? And God's like, no, 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 I'm going to give you a land. I promise you a land that's yours and you get to finally stop. You get to finally rest. Rest from being nomads. Rest from being slaves. And have a land that is finally yours, a place that you can finally call home. However, Hebrews 4 tells us that even an Israel entering that promised land, the idea of rest was still incomplete. Hebrews 4.8 For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Meaning, Israel's rest in the promised land is not the full revelation of God's plan for God's people to settle in and rest. Israel's rest in the promised land was purposefully intended to be just a glimpse at God's full revelation, which is eternal rest in Jesus Christ. So we have... This promise. We have all kinds of promises in the Old Testament. And then in Christ, they're better. And that's really ultimately the point. Is that Jesus makes everything better. Right? I mean, you can say that about literally everything in life. Jesus makes everything better. But specifically, referring to the Old Covenant versus the New, Jesus makes it better. Even the promises of God. Meaning... Though God makes Joshua the promise that he will never leave him or forsake him, when he makes us the same promise, it's a better promise because of Jesus. So, how does Jesus make God's promise that he will never leave us or forsake us better? We see how he made rest better. We see how he made the gospel better. How does he make this promise? The promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. Why is it better in Christ? Isn't God the same yesterday, today, and forever? Wouldn't his promise back then be just as valid as it is now? Yes, it's just as valid, but it's better because it's the fuller revelation of who God is. So here's the answer to the question, really. How does Jesus make God's promise that he will never leave us or forsake us better? Because of Jesus, there are now three things, I think more than three, I'm going to tell you three, three most important, three ways that God's promise to never leave us is better than it was in the Old Testament. Number one, we have the Word of God. Now the Old Testament saints had the first five books of the Bible, and then they had uh, the prophets as well. Right? So they had the law, which is what the first five books of the Bible, they called the law. And most Jews knew the law pretty much by heart. They would like memorize it. They'd know it very well. And then they've got the prophets. And the prophets, I mean, if they wanted to hear a new word from God or what are we doing, where are we going, what's going on, God, how are things, you know, are we okay, are we not cool, are we cool? They had to wait for the prophets. The prophets had to show up and say, thus saith the Lord. And now, but in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, we get this promise that God no longer speaks to us through the prophets, but instead he speaks to us through his son, who is the word. 
So what you now hold in your hand is the full revelation of God. So this promise that God will be with you is now realized in a book. That God is with you always in word. More so than he was with the Old Testament saints because they didn't have the full revelation of God's word. We have the full revelation of God's word. So uh, more so than those Old Testament saints do because we have the complete word. Meaning God's promise to never leave us or forsake us means that he will always be with us in word. Meaning God is always speaking to us. That's a great promise. It's a great promise if you're an Old Testament saint. Yeah, God's going to be with us. We're going to go into battle. He's going to win this battle. And he does it every time. Great promise. Lacks nothing. But then in Christ, there's no like, whoa, whoa, what's, what's going on? I don't understand what you're doing, God. What's the mystery? What's the answer? What's, what's the gospel look like? What's the world look like? What's the rest look like? What's the future look like? He's like, it's all right here. You have my full revelation. Is this really the fullness of who God is? No. There's more. But this is the fullness of all that we could, that all we need to know. And it's inexhaustible. So God is with us in word. That's one of the ways that Jesus makes the new covenant promises better. That's one way that Jesus makes the promise, I will never leave you or forsake you, better by giving us the full word. Number two. Number two way that Jesus makes the promise that God will never leave us or forsake us better. We have the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The helper is the Holy Spirit. And the promise is that he will be with us forever. I mean, look at what the Spirit does. I will give you, Jesus says, I'll give you another helper to do what? To be with you forever. And I'm talking eternally. We're going to get him in heaven too. Full of the Spirit, full of the Spirit of God. Only a couple instances in the Old Testament does an Old Testament saint get the Spirit of God. And when they do get the Spirit of God, it's not guaranteed they'll be with that person forever, right? Saul gets the Spirit of God, and God's like, dude, I don't like you anymore. I'm going to take my Spirit out, I'm going to give it to David, and David gets my Spirit, right? So, like, Saul's like, cool, I got the Spirit of God, I can, like, you know, do spiritual things, and, and then, like, He's bad, and God's like, nope, takes it away. Can you imagine if that was our life? If you're like, thanks for your spirit, God, and then you sin, he's like, no, mine. And you're like, oh, man, I blew it. Can you imagine? Like, can you imagine? We would never have the spirit. <laughs> right? And can you imagine the legalism that would be produced from that kind of reality that, like, you have to consistently be good and to have God's spirit? Or, or just even this reality that you maybe aren't guaranteed to have the spirit forever? This is a great promise. We always have the Holy Spirit. Once you get saved, the Holy Spirit enters you, regenerates your heart, gives you the gift of faith, causes belief, saves you, and then starts sanctifying you and will never leave you until you're glorified and will stay with you for eternity. That is an incredible promise. A promise they maybe could see coming in the future, but the Old Testament saints couldn't have. And the reason it's better, and the reason we get that, is because Jesus gives us that. He makes this 
covenant these promises better. He makes the promise, I will never leave you or forsake you better by saying the way in which I will never leave you and forsake you is not only by giving you my full revelation in the word, but by literally entering you and dwelling within you and thinking for you and moving for you and manifesting my holiness through you and working my gifts out of you and using you as an instrument to bring Jesus exaltation and God glory. Like, you cannot escape God, right? So this promise that I will never leave you or forsake you is made even better by getting the Holy Spirit. And number three, the number three way that Jesus makes the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us better. We have an advocate. The advocate is Jesus. But it's not just that we have Jesus but it is what Jesus does for us that he was not around to do for the Old Testament saints, which is to advocate for us. 1 John 2.1 We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So what does it mean that he advocates for us? The answer is in Hebrews 7.25 He, that's Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he is always, or since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's his ministry. He intercedes for us. He steps in for us. He constantly declares to the Father that we are his. His presence at the right hand of the Father on the throne is Jesus' evidence, is the Father's evidence in Christ that we are his. He is the advocate. He is the one who intercedes for us. He even intercedes for us, constantly advocating to the Father for us that we are holy even when we sin. Can you, you believe that reality? It's like when a child does something really bad. Like maybe they punch their sibling. You're like, that's bad? That happens every day at my house. <laughs> it kind of does at ours too. Whatever. Um, your, your child punches their sibling, right? And then, you know, mom's like, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing that. That's a bad thing. You know, discipline the kid. And the dad steps in and goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Leave him alone. He's a good kid. <laughs> the mom would be like, what are you talking about? He just punched his brother. He's not a good kid. <laughs> right? Like, you've got this daddy steps in like an advocate. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. He's a good kid. The, the reality is that's not a good situation. Right? That's not true. You don't just step in and go, no, you, you're, you're okay. You go ahead and keep sinning. But for, that, that's why it makes no sense. No parent would do that and just step in and go, no, he's a good kid. No, he's not. He just sinned. We got to deal with it, right? But for Jesus to intercede and advocate on our behalf when we sin, and he says, Father, he's holy. <laughs> what? We don't deserve that? That's incredible grace. That's incredible faith that we get that keeps us saved, right? Jude one twenty four. Jesus keeps us saved. Meaning, even when we sin, even when we are at our worst, if we are genuinely believers, he will not and cannot leave us. 
but will always be with us because Jesus intercedes and advocates for us because we are related to him through our faith in him. And this is not just his part-time job. This isn't what Jesus does on the side. This is his full-time ministry. Because this verse says he always lives to make intercession for us. That is a better promise than the Old Testament saints had. Was God's grace involved with the Old Testament saints? Oh yeah, tons of grace. People often think in the Old Testament, we've got a God of wrath. In the New Testament, we've got this God of grace, right? Because he's like, brings down fire and burns cities completely and sends plagues into Egypt. And then in the New Testament, you know, oh, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The funny thing is, the greatest wrath in the entire Bible is in the New Testament. When God pours out the fullness of his anger and vengeance on your sin all over his son. That's the biggest moment of wrath in the entire Bible, and it's in the New Covenant. This is a great promise and a great amount of grace and goodness that no matter what we do or how bad we are, and this is not permission to sin, this is permission to be righteous. No matter how bad we are, Jesus advocates for us. That's a better promise than they had. So, what does all this have to do with the command to be strong and courageous? It's important that we understand that the command to be strong and courageous comes with the promise that he, God will never leave us or forsake us, right? We've got to see those realities together. Because in the Old Testament, they're always together. This command to be strong and courageous happens seven times in the Old Testament. Every single time it happens in the Old Testament, it's accompanied with this promise that God will be with them. And when God makes the same promise to us, it is an even better promise because of Jesus, right? Meaning that these two are related, and I think Paul is bringing up this command to draw out that reminding promise that he will be with us. And what that means is this. You can be strong and courageous because God is always with you. Because God will never leave you. Because God will never forsake you. Because God is always with you in word, in spirit, and in Christ. So the only question really left to answer is, for what purpose are we supposed to be strong and courageous, right? Like, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to be strong and courageous, but like in what situation, okay? I'm supposed to be strong and courageous, but strong and courageous against what? Against your immaturity. Did you think I was going to say sin? <laughs> I thought maybe you were. That's why I kind of slowed it down to, to pull a twist on you, right? It's not a twist. It's really what Paul's looking for. Paul's talking about maturity. That's why this command is translated, act like men. It means grow up. And now, when, how you say grow up matters, right? Like, I could stand up here and be like, hey, guys, let's all grow up in Christ, right? You'd be like, all right, let's do it, Pastor Mark. But if I came up to the poems like, grow up, you'd be like, whoa, what do we do? Right? <laughs> and, and so how you say it matters. Now, when Paul says it to the Corinthians, we don't really know his tone. 
But based on the content of the letter, I would imagine it's something like, will you guys please grow up? They're super immature. Chapter 14, verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Meaning, brothers, you are children in your thinking. Time to grow up. And he says, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In chapter 3, verse 1, he calls them infants in Christ and tells them, this is absolutely unacceptable that you're still this immature in your relationship with Christ. It is unacceptable to be a Christian and not mature and grow in your faith. You have to be growing. In fact, I would say, if you're not, then you're not saved because there's no way the Holy Spirit is in you and doing nothing. And when the Spirit works, He will make fruit. It's a promise. Jesus, Jesus told us this in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, that good trees make good fruit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you're saved, and you're a good tree, and you will produce good fruit. Christians will grow. Yes, we'll grow at different rates. Yes, we'll grow in different ways. It will look different for every person. Every person is going through different things. It will feel different. There's so many variables included in that growth. So I'm not walking around saying, let's start judging each other. Who's growing? Who's not? That's not the point. My point is to reach your heart and have you start thinking, all right, what is my next step? What is the next thing God is doing to me? Where, where does he have me? Is there a sin that he's trying to Trying to rip out of my soul? Is there a sin that has found its way deep inside my soul? Is now inside the, the, the castle walls of my heart. And is building up this sinful stronghold that is already behind my lines. It's already inside the walls of my castle. It's already in my heart. I, it's no longer about protecting myself and keeping this thing away from me. Now it's in me. And it's killing me. If that's happening, that's your next step. That sin is the thing that Jesus is looking to destroy. You want to help with that? I do have a really good book. It's literally called Destroying Strongholds. About that very idea of tearing down the walls of sin that are not just in your way, but are building up there like it's like it's like a, a virus that attaches itself to every organ in your body and then starts multiplying and spreading all throughout you it starts infecting everything it affects the way you think it affects the things you do is that your next step or is that not you do you not have that stronghold of sin that's just tearing you up inside maybe it's something else like, sometimes I'll talk to my mom, and she'll be like, oh, I'm really struggling with, you know, this thing. And I'm like, that, that's it? That's your struggle? That you, that you felt like, you know, I don't want to give examples because I don't want you to think certain things about my mom. But her struggles are like this big. I'm like, I wish that was my struggle. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and I'm just, I get like super jealous. Like, her next step in maturity is going to look so different than mine. So we all have a different next step to take. But the reality is, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Grow. That's the command there. Grow. I could just leave it like that. But there's something specific we grow in. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Imagine if your 10-year-old just stopped maturing. And 25 years later, you got a 35-year-old man living in your basement 
He acts like a 10-year-old. They're out there. They're on the internet. They live on the internet. We call them trolls. So, I mean, I'm not trying to make fun of people, but that's literally what they call them. Uh, you know, that, that would be totally unacceptable. If you were a parent and that was your kid, I think that we would be like, all right, man, there, there's got to be some accountability here. There's got to be some, you have to stop enabling this kid. There has to be some sort of growth. And I know so many Christians who got saved 20 years ago and still all they can say is, well, all that matters is God loves me. I'm like, well, first of all, amen. True. And second of all, is that all you know still? You know, like, where's the next thing? Where, where, how has your doctrine developed? How has your theology developed? How have you practically put it into practice? How are you living out those doctrines? How are you living out your knowledge and awareness of God and your growth and your relationship with Jesus? How have you grown in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? Where is that taking place? It's unacceptable not to grow. The promise is that God is always with us, which means we have his word, his spirit, and his son as the means by which we mature. And the command to be strong and courageous is necessary to mature because spiritual growth will always come with sacrifice, which we hate to hear. We really, I mean, seriously, I sat, I've sat in so many sermons in my life, and every time the pastor says something like, you're going to have to do this hard thing, I'm like, no, I don't want to. Like, I can feel it. Like, I really just wish you'd just tell me I just have to confess it to God and then I move on my way. Right? Like, it's easy to confess things to God. He already knows them. <laughs> and you still do them. So obviously you don't care what he thinks. Right? So when, they, when we're told or commanded to do something a little harder, a little more, maybe even kind of reveal some of the shame that comes with it, and we're like, Ooh, I don't want to do that. A little bit of sacrifice, a little bit of hardship. That's what it takes. That's what it takes to grow up. That's what maturity takes. My son, my youngest son came to me the other day. It was at night, and he's like, Dad, my knees hurt. And I'm like, ha, 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 growing pains. We all got to go through them. You're fine. Go back to bed. You know? <laughs> I'm way more tender than that, by the way. Uh, I was more like, oh, my baby. And I scooped him up and took him to bed. But uh, the reality is we all go through those growing pains, right? Like, we all have to feel the pain of growing up. And it hurts when God wants to chisel us. It will be hard to mature. You will need to be strong and courageous to choose to mature, to face what it takes to mature, and to endure through the hardship of growing up. You have to be strong and courageous for that. And the means, the confidence that you have in being strong and courageous is that you're never doing it alone because God is always with you. His word tells you how to do it and his spirit will help you through it. And if you waver in any way, Jesus is there interceding on your behalf and advocating for you. You do not and cannot lose when you take that next step of maturity. Whatever suffering or hardship your maturity will cause or, or whatever sacrifice you'll have to make to grow up into that next step, it is worth it. And you are given this promise that when you go through it, God will carry you through. So he doesn't just go, hey, go do this hard thing for me. 
And you're like, God, I don't want to. And he's like, I don't care if you want to. Just do it because I said so. You ever do that one on your kids? Why? Because I said so? Oh, I love that line. My parents use it on me all the time. I was like, I can't wait till I'm a parent. I'm using my kids all the time. <laughs> I'm really making myself out to be a bad dad today, aren't I? That's okay. Next week's sermon is on parenting. So, uh, <laughs> how to be a strict dad. So, uh, no, I'm teasing. Um, God does not treat us that way. He's not just like, do it because I said so. He's like, do it. And I'll tell you why. It's good for you. It glorifies me. And I will carry you through it and do it for you. And the result will be you are satisfied with me, your God. You get joy and you get growth. I get glory. Everyone wins. And the whole time I'm there just in case you need me. Actually, that's not even true. Because you will always need me, right? Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 1, 8-9, that his hardship, the purpose of his hardship was to depend on God. God will sometimes give you those hardships so that you lean on him. Right? And what, what, I'm, what I'm telling you is that Paul's commanding us, be strong and courageous, because with that strength and courage comes this promise that God will be with you. You don't have to be afraid of what comes next in your next step of growing up in Christ. You don't have to fear it. There's nothing we should fear. We have Christ. There's nothing to be afraid of. The worst thing, I said this this, this weekend with the men's retreat. I love this truth. The worst thing that your hardship, the worst thing that your next step of maturity or growing could possibly do, the worst possible thing that could happen to you is you die and go to heaven. Pretty sweet trade, right? So whatever it takes for me to get to that next step, I, I'm willing to do it. If it's such, if the leap of faith is so wide, if there's a chasm deep, and I'm standing here, and God's next step is over here, and the only way to jump from here to here is a huge leap of faith, and I'm afraid that when I jump, I might not make it like, you know, Roadrunner cartoons, right, where he gets halfway there and he starts running his legs really fast and then just, whoop, falls. <laughs> if that happens to me and I jump and I don't make it, I die. Sweet. Right? Philippians 1.21. I call that gain. I get Jesus. And if, if I do make it, it's because God's like, choo. <laughs> he takes you and he just like carries you all. He picks you up and just, he makes that leap of faith his and carries you to the other side. Either way, there's nothing. So what I'm saying is if your fear is you're not going to make that leap, don't worry. He's with you. So, that's the command, be strong and courageous, and here's the promise, he's always with you. And you need to be strong and courageous to take that next step of maturity. So, let's make this as practical as possible. Um, though I don't know what your next step is or what the next step will include for you personally, I can give you some practical ways to get there. So, I'm going to give you a list of 20 things, 20 ways to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Just a list, I'm not going to get into any of them. Number one, read your Bible. Daily. Daily. Like, answer this question in your head, to yourself. Other than this morning, before this morning, 
When was the last time you opened up the Bible and read it? Answer it in your own head. Think about that. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? Read your Bible daily. Number two, study your Bible daily. Don't just read it. Dive into it. Treasure trove of gold. <clears throat> Number three, pray constantly and fervently. Number four, listen to good sermons by good Reformed preachers. Number five, read good books by good authors. Those good authors and those good preachers tend to be the same guys, right? And they're good authors because they're good preachers. They become authors because they're good preachers. I could give you a list. I got a list of 30 guys right here. I could read them for you. Or you could come see me after church, and I could give you this list of 30 guys. I'll just tell them to you. John MacArthur, John Stott, Mark Dever, C.J. Mahaney, Matt Chandler, David Platt, Albert Muller, Jonathan Edwards, Crawford Lords, John Calvin, John Owens, Sam Storms, Martin Lloyd-Jones, John Piper, Jason Myers, D.A. Carson, R.C. Sproul, Vadi Bauchum, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, Alistair Begg, Paul Washer, Graham Goldsworthy, Wayne Grudem, Richard Baxter, Bruce Ware, Thabiti Anyabwale, Andrew Murray, Cotton Mather. Some of those guys are dead and have been for a long time. Can't exactly go listen to their sermons. Although you can find people reading their old sermons, so there's like some other dude preaching their sermon. But my point there is you do not have a lack of resources. Okay? Listen to good sermons. Read good books by good authors. Number six, sing worship music. In church. In home. Outside. In the car. Everywhere. Grocery store. I don't care. Dentist's office. Even while they're working on your teeth and your mouth's wide open, just sing. Sing all the time. Worship God constantly. Walk down the aisles at the grocery store just saying, Jesus, Jesus. People are going to be like, what is wrong with that guy? <laughs> and they're going to be, and you're gonna be like, they're going to know what you're about. <laughs> right? I mean, seriously, like, maybe don't do it like that. <laughs> I go to Grace Church. Um, <laughs> no. uh, but my point is just, just be in worship. I mean, man, have fun with God. Just sing. I, I don't know about you guys, but because of this weekend at men's retreat, Lon and Will led worship and music. And I was like this proud, the proudest pastor in the world. I'm standing there watching these two guys just play with extreme excellence. And a room full of a hundred men with these deep, resounding voices singing praises to Jesus. And I was like, this is the greatest moment of my life. This is so good. Like, I'm worshiping God. I've got the two dudes that I love the most standing right in front of me. Leading these people in worship. Leading me in worship. And, and I'm just having a blast. That's fun. If you love Jesus, that's fun. So, make it a habit and a practice. Worship Him all the time. When you're at home, turn that music on. Number seven, join a life group coming this fall. More details on that later, but that's a reality. That's a really great way. It's kind of a promo, but also, like, it's a great, I mean, that is one of the best ways to, by, by living life together with other people, what a way to grow. Join a life group. Number eight, one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Number nine, accountability partner. Number 10, confess your sins to God. Number 11, hard one, confess your sins to another Christian friend. Number 12, journal, journal your spiritual journey. That's a great way to look back at your past and see what God has been doing. Number 13, talk theology with a good friend over a cup of coffee and two Bibles. 
That's, that's what I love. That's one of my favorite activities. When I get text messages from people like, dude, you want to do some coffee? I'm like, oh, yeah, totally. Bring in my Bible. <laughs> you know, and we just talk. And I love that. Even if it's not about the Bible, just that camaraderie, that partnership, that fellowship, that's so good for your, for your spiritual growth. Number 14, give. Number 15, serve. Number 16, host. Number 17, go to church regularly, constant, uh, consistently, and faithfully. Number 18, discover your spiritual gift. Number 19, get involved in the ministry to use your spiritual gift. And number 20, stay off your phone. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was cool at the first 19, and then you had to go make it personal and bring my phone into it. You asked me for money and to host things and do a ministry, but don't touch my phone. It's got a passcode. That means only I get to have what's on this phone. I mean, seriously, that thing is like a death trap. It is. I mean, it should be and could be used in very glorious ways. And yes, you should have a phone, and it's impossible almost to have, not have one now these days. But stay off of it. You don't have to be on it all the time. I was at this event for my children. All these parents were watching. I pulled my phone out, and I was like, I'm bored. Pulling the phone, I was like, wait a minute. I had a friend tell me, that's not what this is about. This is about the kids, so I'm going to be focused on my kids. So I put my phone away. Looked down the line of parents every single parent was like this. And I was like, that's what that friend was talking about. They're missing out on this moment with their children, this involvement, this participation. Put your phone away. Not only that, but you can have anything you want on that phone. Anything. <laughs> any sin, any good thing. I buy amazing books off of Amazon on my Amazon app right off my phone. Good things. I could easily buy bad things. That thing, that phone, is a dangerous tool. You need someone to hold you accountable. My wife and I, yes, we both have passcodes on our phones, but we know our passcodes. We share face ID on our phones. You can do that. You can have more than one face on your phone for face ID or thumbprint. You can have more than one thumbprint or just know each other's passcodes. You know, there's no excuse. My wife and I, we know it. If she picks up my, she could, my phone could be sitting here like this. She could walk by, pick it up, and if I was like, no, she'd be like, why? <laughs> so when she picks up, I'm like, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> you know, like, we just have this agreement. There's no question. She doesn't have to ask. It's hers. What I own is hers, and what she owns is mine. Like, we know that there's this accountability. I will check up on you whenever I want, wherever I want, and however I want, and you better be ready for it, <laughs> right? That's the way we live. So... There, this list of 20 things are just some of the ways that you can grow. And you're probably doing a lot of these things already, but there's always room for improvement and growth. So doing any of these things regularly and consistently and faithfully requires you to be strong and courageous so that you can endure whatever hardship comes with it or whatever chiseling God is doing in your life through it. But you are given this great promise that when you choose to take that next step towards maturity, God will be with you. He will never leave you because Jesus is for you. Let's pray.